Hey, let's give it up for Sydney and Jackson again. Isn't that awesome? So thankful to get to see and get to hear their profession that Jesus is God and Lord. And both are true. And so I'm glad Sydney confessed that today. If you have your Bible, take it and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our series called True Grace, looking at the book of 1 Peter. Uh, if I don't know you, my name is Matt Stewart. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, and if you're joining us online, thank you. We're so thankful that uh, you chose to worship with us today. Um, I'm so thankful for our pastor, for his commitment to what's called expositional preaching, where we take a book of the Bible, we open it up, and we walk through it verse by verse. A little uh, preacher secret, that's way easier than trying to make something up on your own every week. So there's a practical element to it, but on the other hand, it's how we keep on the straight and narrow. It's how we make sure that we're being faithful to declare the whole counsel of God. And I'm so thankful for his commitment to that. Uh, before we jump into the word, let's dedicate our time to him. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of getting to worship you today as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, that like Sydney, they would turn from their sin, trust in Christ, and experience the cleansing power that comes through the cross of Christ. Father, would you please speak to us this morning? Would you help us to listen to this word and to live it out? And again, Father, I thank you for our pastor, his faithfulness to shepherd us and to preach the word. And Lord, I pray that we would be mindful to pray for our pastor, to love him, to honor him, uh, to encourage him. And I thank you for uh, his obedience to do and to say what's right, even if that's not popular. And I ask that you'd bless him. Uh, Father, please help us now and help me now. I pray what the Apostle Paul prayed, that my speech and message would not be with plausible words of wisdom, but that they would be a demonstration of your spirit and of your power, so that our faith wouldn't rest in the wisdom of mere men, but in the power of God. And we ask this now by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep in mind the context. Okay, that's one of the things about expositional preaching. We're preaching from a book of the Bible, and so we don't want to divorce this passage that we're looking at today from what Pastor Ronnie preached last week about how we have been made a new people and called to proclaim the gospel as his new people. So now listen to what the Holy Spirit says through Peter, starting in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. 
Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You know, we all have a desire to belong, to be a part of a group, to be a part of a people. And sometimes we're willing to go to incredible lengths to do that. Take, for instance, you might have seen this on the internet or on TV, the Cooper's Hill Cheese Rolling Contest. I don't know if you've heard of that or not, but outside of Gloucester, England, there is a hill called Cooper's Hill, and for some odd reason, hundreds of people register to go to the top of this 200-yard-long hill that's very steep, and they take a wheel of cheese, and they roll it down the hill, and then they chase after it as fast as they can. And the first person to the bottom wins. I don't know what the cheese actually has to do with any of it. And it's not as if, you know, there are nice, like, you get to wear pads or their safety equipment on the sides. It's just a hill, 200 yards long, very steep angle, and you run as fast as you can. Of course, the cheese wheel gets a second head start. I don't know why that is, but everyone just goes after it. And it's not this nice, dainty sort of process. I mean, people are a mess. The bodies just careening down this hill. People breaking legs, getting concussions, uh, puncturing lungs, all kinds of terrible things. And do you know what they get if they win? The cheese! (laughs) I love cheese, but not that much. It's craziness. But people will do all kinds of things for the sake of tradition, for being being a part of a people, a part of a community. Now, as funny as that is, I'm afraid it's true of American Christians because we've already been made a part of a people called the Church of Jesus Christ. And yet we live as if we're not a part of a people and we will do anything to belong to this world. And so we will sacrifice integrity, family, eternity to fit in and to be a part of of the people around us. But as Peter shows us here, we have been called to something far different, something far more significant. And yes, it will require at times us being alienated from this world, but it will mean spending eternity with Him. And so that's the main idea I want you to walk away with from our text, and that is that our heavenly citizenship must drive our earthly witness. Our heavenly citizenship must drive our earthly witness. Now, I told you to keep in mind the context here. Look back to verse 9 real quick. This won't be on the screen, but verse 9. But you, speaking to believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, one time you weren't a people, but now you are God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And as his people, as his citizens, as his sons and daughters, you have a purpose. And that is to point others to Jesus through your words and through your actions. And so that means that heavenly citizenship has to drive our decision-making in this life. The question is, how exactly should it drive us as we live out our time in this world? Well, good question. So hopefully I've got some good answers for you. Number one, it should drive us to abstain from sinful passions. Abstain from sinful passions. Look again at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So stop there. Notice how he's identified his readers. Beloved, he loves them because God loves them, and they're a part of the same family. Notice also, they are sojourners and exiles. Now, I just want us to pause here real quick, and I want you to settle into an idea as we get going. And that idea is, you don't belong to this world. You are simply passing through if you are a Christian. And that means your value system and your decision-making has to take on the character of your heavenly citizenship. You must see yourself as an outsider who is an ambassador for the king. And as a result, you don't have the same values as the world, and you need to be okay with that. Because the longer you try to fit in, the more confusing the gospel will become to a watching world. So we need to be firm in our understanding of what our identity is. But listen to what he says then. As sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, I'm afraid sometimes when we talk about sin, we talk about it like it's just all shucks, bad habits sort of thing. But what Scripture is telling us here, and what James reminds us in James chapter 4, is our passions are at war in us, seeking to pull away from honoring Christ and obeying Him. They're not neutral. And when the Scripture uses that word passions, it means the lusts of the flesh, inordinate desires, your sinful cravings on the inside. Now, when you were saved, you were forgiven of your sin. You were set free from the bondage to have to obey sin. And you were filled with the Spirit, so you have the ability to say no to sin. But there's still sin inside of you, and God's in the process of sanctifying you and fitting you for eternity. But that means... There is a war taking place for your soul. And your sin isn't neutral. And you have a responsibility to go to war with it. Notice what he says here. He says, tiptoe around the passions of the flesh. No, that's not what he said. Bat an eye at the passions of the flesh. Chuckle at the common passions of the flesh that we all share? No, he says, abstain, be done with, cut off, crucify, leave them behind. It is war we're talking about. There's no neutrality here. There's no kind of sitting by and hoping that they go away. 
you and I, by the power of the Spirit, as children of God and citizens of His kingdom, must crucify the desires of our flesh. You might have heard of the story of Captain Hernan Cortez, who in 1519, he and 600 Spaniards arrived on the Mexican coast. And there they established Veracruz, and they began training and disciplining themselves for the ensuing battle with Montezuma and the Aztecs. And Captain Cortez wanted to send a message to his men that they would, in fact, fight to the death. And so he took 10 of the 11 ships that they had sailed in, and he burned them and sunk them, and then took the rest of the sailors that had come with them, put them on the 11th vessel, and sent them back to Spain. In other words, there was no retreat. There was no way out if things went bad. It was fight to the death. We need to have a a similar mindset when it comes to the war going on inside of us with sin. Some of us have been languishing in sin, even though we've been set free from the bondage and the power of sin through faith in Christ. And it's because we act as if it's just going to go away at some point, or that's just the way life is. No! You have to burn the ships. You have to be done with it. You have to say no to it. You have to go to war with it. And you do so not in your own power, not in your own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And as you do so, your life proclaims the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that's why Paul says there in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't leave any ships in harbor. Don't give yourself a way to escape. Don't give yourself reasons to go back to sin. Burn the ships once and for all and experience the freedom of walking in fellowship with Christ. Number two, our heavenly citizenship should drive us to live beautifully among unbelievers. Beautifully among unbelievers. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. A few weeks back, Pastor Stewart and I which, I, by the way, I know gets a little confusing sometimes. I am Matt Stewart. He is Stuart Owens. They sound similar. They're spelled differently. We're both good-looking. So I, I understand it gets confusing. But Pastor Stewart and I went to lunch uh, a few weeks back, and we, this establishment will remain unnamed, but it was a newer establishment, and it looked great when we pulled up. We were pretty excited about it, and we walked in, and the smells were amazing, and it looked clean and new, and went up to the counter and ordered our food. And as we made our way over to the little stand where the sauces and the silverware are, we reached to grab one of the sauces, and when we pulled it up, a cockroach pops up out. Which, 
didn't make me feel very hungry in the moment. I tried to put it out of my mind because the food smelled so good. So we went and we sat down and we asked a double blessing over our food and started eating. And then Pastor Seward said, oh, no. And I was like, what? He said, look behind you. And I look and up one of the chairs is another cockroach crawling up. Needless to say, I'm probably not going back to this establishment. But again, as silly as that is, that's sort of the picture of what happens when we profess with our mouths to be Christians, but we live like the world on the other hand. We're telling people, Jesus is wonderful, you should, you should trust Him, you should come to church, but then you live like hell for the other six days of the week. It's like the cockroach crawling up the wall. It's like the hair in the food that you're about to eat. How does it give you any sort of desire How does it give a person a desire to believe on the gospel when the gospel that we profess is marred by our lives? That's why Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, morally good, beautiful, so that, and he's assuming this is going to happen, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, we live in a world that's becoming increasingly more hostile to the gospel in our day. But for most of history, that's been the case. It's nothing new. And so just as I told you to settle into your identity as sojourners and exiles, so we have to settle into the idea that even when we seek to honor God and obey His commands and live out His values, people will look at that and say that's evil. Now the desire of the flesh in that moment will be to trade blow for blow or to argue with them, but what Peter is telling us, and he's actually referring to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, is that rather than trading blow for blow, we are to love our enemies and do good to them. He says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There may be some who revile Christians now, But when they see your good works, living out your faith, doing what you do on a normal basis as a mom or as a dad, raising your kids, or the way you go about your job with integrity and you work diligently, or the way that you are a faithful citizen of the country, of the state, of the county, of the city that you're a part of, when you are simply kind to other people in the day and age we live in, it will point them to Jesus. And it just might be that they glorify God on the day He visits. But you've got to adopt the mindset that you don't belong here and that you're living by a set of different standards rather than trying to fit in to the world. That leads us to number three. We must submit to every human institution. Submit to every human institution. Listen to verses 13 through 15. 
Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. And just pause right there. It's not very often that we see something so explicit in Scripture. We're, we're all kind of wondering, what's God's will for my life? What, what's God's will for my life? Well, this right here. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's powerful, isn't it? This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. But notice what he says in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Well, what are human institutions? Well, the context tells us first and foremost, that's government. We have a president, we have a congress, we have a governor, we have a mayor, we have a chief of police, we have a boss, you have a husband, you have parents. I know it's not very popular to talk about levels of authority in our day, but God has given us structure so that there's not chaos in society and the home and society can flourish. And when we choose to not operate in subjection to the proper authorities, we create a chaotic situation. More than that, we show that we don't submit to the lordship of Jesus. And that's a problem. Especially if you've passed through these waters and you've said Christ is Lord. He's either Lord of all of your life or he's not Lord of, at all. And that's what life is about. It's about us bringing our lives in subjection to the lordship of Jesus, which means doing what he says. It means honoring and respecting the authorities in our life. So that even when they revile us, even when they speak evil of us, our character and our conduct and our speech is such that we're pointing them to Christ and we are leaving vengeance to the Lord. Because His is the, is the re responsibility to hand out justice. And we can trust that He will do it exactly the right way. But we must trust Him. Wayne Grudem, I think, helps us understand this to some extent when he says, the principle to be drawn from these passages, that is this passage in Romans chapter 13, which I'll show you in just a second, is obey except when commanded to sin. This is the Christian's responsibility toward all forms of rightful human authority, whether the individual Christian agrees with all the policies of that authority or not. Now you might be saying, come on Matt, really? I mean, do you know the day and time that we live in? The people who are in authority over us? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, friends, we could go into a prolonged discussion this morning about the sovereignty of God over evil and how he uses wicked kings and wicked rulers for his glory. But the bottom line is, if he says that we are to obey the governing authorities and that if we don't, there will be judgment, 
We should probably just take his word for it, don't you think? He is God, after all. That doesn't mean we always agree with authorities. In fact, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego show us in Daniel chapter 3, there are times when we may be required to disobey our rulers, but only when we are called upon to sin, when we are called to give up our allegiance to Christ as king. Even then, we do so with a disposition that says, but we're going to honor you even when we have to disobey you. Listen to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Nebuchadnezzar when they're told, you've got to bow down to the golden idol. And they said, actually, no, we're not, O king. And they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Even when we're required, because of our allegiance to Jesus, to disobey governing authorities, we do so as those who are seeking to honor the authorities over us in subjection to Christ as Lord and then trusting our souls to the care of our Maker, knowing He will bring about justice as is right. And that leads us to the fourth truth that I want you to see. Our heavenly citizenship ought to drive us to use freedom in Christ to serve God and others. Look at verses 16 and 17. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. What does he mean, freedom? Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Well, he's saying that when you turn from your sin to trust in Christ, you were forgiven of your sin, and you were set free from your bondage to the law and to the power of sin. So you are free in Christ, not to live however you want to, but to live as you ought to as followers of Jesus. Do you see the distinction? That's why Paul asked the rhetorical question in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or why he goes on to say in verses 15 through 18 of Romans chapter 6, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? In other words, hey, we've got our out-of-hell card, so why don't we just live it up, right? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That means that your freedom in Christ from sin, your freedom in Christ from the law, has freed you to become a slave of Christ and to enjoy the freedom of walking by the Spirit and therefore serving God and serving others as you ought to, not to live however you want to. We need to hear that today. 
Because I'm afraid that the church itself has imbibed sort of the aura of the culture, that it's all about me, it's what I want, it's what I want to do. You can't tell me it's wrong. And Christ has said, either I am Lord of all of your life or not Lord at all. We all must make that choice. Whether we will live as slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. You might ask, well, Matt, what does it look like to serve God and serve others with this freedom? Great question. The text tells us. Notice what he says. Number one, honor everyone. Honor everyone. Whether they're black or white, whether they're gay or straight, whether they're Democrat or Republican, we may disagree with them. In fact, we are required to disagree with them when what they believe is counter to the gospel. But that doesn't mean that we dishonor them because they are image bearers of God. We treat every person with dignity and respect with the hope that our words and our actions will point them to Christ and that they will too be saved. It tells us also that we are to love the brotherhood. We have been freed from sin to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not optional. Whether you like it or not, you got adopted into the family of God. And yeah, we've got some weird uncles and crazy cousins, but we're all helping each other walk toward eternity, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, praying for one another. We need each other, and we must love each other in our words and in our actions. Number three, he tells us we use our freedom to fear God. Fear God. You will fear God one of two ways. You will either cower and tremble because you have approached the judge apart from Christ, or you will rejoice and tremble at the majesty of your Father who adopted you into His family. But it will be one or the other. And I would plead with you as God's children to live in fear of God. And in doing so, you have no need to fear any man. And that leads us to the fourth thing. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Now you read that and you go, come on. If, if Peter was living in our day, and he had to live in the government that we experience, and if he had to follow the leaders that we have to follow, surely he wouldn't say this, right? Well, you know by now that Nero was emperor at this time. He served as the emperor from A.D. 54 to 68. And the Roman historian Tacitus, who was alive during this time, recorded in his histories about how Nero responded when the fires consumed the city of Rome. And he was already not in good favor with the people, and so he was looking for a way out, and he pointed the finger at the Christians. And this is what Tacitus says. To the end, the rumors that he had started the fire, Nero accused and tortured a group who were hated for their abominations. We clearly see which side Tacitus is on here. The group commonly known as Christians. The sect had been named after Christ, executed by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, when Tiberius was emperor. Their fatal superstition had been checked temporarily, but was beginning to break out again, not only in Judea, but even in Rome itself, where all kinds of vile and shameful activities gather and catch on. 
First, the authorities arrested those who confessed to being Christians. Then, on information obtained from them, the courts convicted hundreds more, not so much for starting the fire as for their antisocial beliefs. Mockery was heaped on them in their deaths. They were covered in the skins of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs, crucified or set ablaze so that when nighttime fell, they lit up everything like torches. Nero had opened his own gardens for this spectacle and gave a show in the arena where he mingled with the crowd or stood in the garb of a charioteer in a chariot. Consequently, although his victims were guilty and deserved to die, people began to feel compassion for them, for they realized that they were being killed not for the public good, but to gratify one man's madness. And to this man, Peter says, honor the emperor. Friends, you and I have no excuse. You may disagree. You may be required to disobey. But you must honor. How we respond to this word says a lot about the condition of our souls. Whether we pledge allegiance to the state of me, myself, and I, or we pledge our allegiance to Christ as Lord. Now, I don't want to pretend for a second that this is easy. After all, we're sinners and we live in a fallen world. Satan hates us and wants to do everything he can to tear us away from following Christ. But we're not left without tools. We're not left without the power of God. We can cultivate our heavenly citizenship even as we are exiles. And so if you will listen quickly, I will talk quickly, but I just want to give you a few things that will help us to cultivate heavenly citizenship. Number one, make an action plan to crucify your sinful desires. Make an action plan. Don't just talk about it. Don't just think about it. Do it. Some of you, if we're being honest, need to go home and delete your social media accounts today because of the way that you slander others and disrespect your leaders. Some of you need to go home and throw your computer out the window because you're enslaved to pornography. Some of you need to switch jobs because you're so tempted by that person. You need to burn the ships and be done once and for all and stop making excuses for living in the passions of your flesh. Take action by the power of the Spirit. Number two, use the spiritual disciplines to grow in godliness. God's not left you by yourself. He's given you His Word. He's given you prayer. He's given you communion. He's given you the church. All of these things help cultivate godliness in us. But just like you would starve to death if you never ate, some of you are languishing spiritually because you never eat. You never take in the food of God's Word or talk to Him in prayer. Take advantage of these means of grace that God has given you so that you grow in godliness. Number three, inspect your own life before you criticize others. This is good marriage advice, by the way. Humble yourself. And before you point out the speck in somebody else's eye, pull out the log from your own eye. Can you imagine what your marriage or what your family or what your church or what your society would look like if we humbled ourselves in that way? Number four, disagree with others without dishonoring them. 
you may disagree with other people. In fact, you must disagree with people at times if you're going to be faithful to Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you demean people or dishonor them. Because even if you disagree with them, they are still image bearers of God. They need you to show them the truth. They need you to point them to Christ. And that leads us to the last thing. Remember this. If you don't remember anything else I've said today, please remember this. Nothing is worth sacrificing your witness. Nothing. In light of the fact that we have been lavished with grace, who are we to be stingy with our kindness to others? Listen, God's a good judge, and He's going to sort out every wrong done to you. But let's stand before Him one day, having given ourselves to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light with a clear conscience, walking in integrity, not trying to fit into this world but living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.